Welcome to the Unknown Warrior podcast with Pete and Jason from Squeaky Pedal. So we've got Mark Scott back, author of Among the Kings. So we're going to be talking about a few things today, but we're going to start off with getting into a bit of the process of body selection and registering deaths during the First World War. So everyone might be familiar with the Commonwealth War Ghost Commission, which is the body that deals with that now. But before that, it was an entity called the DGR&E. So Mark, do you want to give us a kind of the overview of kind of how that started off and kind of what was their, what was their role back in the during the First World War? Yeah, I, I had to find out about this unit because I, I discovered that uh, Major Ernest Fitzsimon was in it. He was a major um, attached to St. Paul in the DG R&D. So I, I discovered that the DG and RE, first of all, stood for the Directorate of Graves Registration and Inquiry. And this had evolved from a previous and earlier structure within the British Expeditionary Force called the Graves Registration Commission, which had been a unit responsible for the collection of information on uh, British deaths, fatalities, and the locations of bodies and graves um, across the battlefield. In 1917, there was a, a further restructuring where mobile Grave registration units or GRUs, and the GRUs had uh, smaller areas of responsibility within each of the army areas. Each GRU would have been typically commanded by an officer of captain rank with squads of men, and their sole purpose was to carry out searching and exhumation and reburial work in relation to bodies that were found or, or graves that were found across the battlefields. Was that kind of a new thing? Was there anything, any sort of entity before that that kind of did a similar job? Was that the first time that mass registration exercise had to be carried out? As we, we mentioned in the, the first episode, the, the, there'd been huge social changes brought about by the First World War, whereby no other previous conflict had Britain ever tried to collate and bury individual soldiers in marked graves. This had never happened before. So the unprecedented situation created by the First World War, i.e. huge losses, a citizen army of which you know, almost no house in Britain wasn't affected by some sort of loss. The, the circumstances created by the First World War created uh, a national need for commemoration, for bodies to be marked, for people to know where their loved ones had fallen. And so Fabian Ware was, was famous as, as the man who sort of took up the flame as it were to try and sort of organize some sort of uh, organization to ensure that cemeteries were created that bodies were were noted down and that they were you know that there were headstones to the people who were fallen and again this kind of because of the fact it never been done before means that these organizations are created and then morph into different things and then morph into different things as kind of the war goes on and casualties mount and they're trying to make sense of everything that's going on so the dgr&e is kind of one element of that in a kind of it's a military-based operation and then obviously that we we understand the commonwealth war graves commission the imperial war graves commission that comes into play um sort of after that and continues the work of the of the DGRNE after the war. Yeah, and, and after the armistice, obviously, the, the, the work carried out uh, had an emphasis more on attempting to identify and rebury bodies found in isolated graves and to, to concentrate the, the small battlefield cemeteries, if you like, into larger ones. And you see, for example, cemeteries like Tynecott in Belgium, 
which is a, a massive cemetery, but it's it's predominantly populated, if you like, by uh, reburials, and the the DG R and D would have carried out this type of work, tempting at all possible opportunity to identify the bodies that were recovered, and unfortunately ending up burying burying quite a few who were never identified, and essentially the missing. That's right. So the guy who we need to introduce, who's very famous in the Unknown Warriors story, is a guy called Brigadier General Louis John Wyatt. Now, in 1920, he is officer commanding British forces, France and Flanders. But previous to this, so he was born in 1874. He joined the army soon after leaving grammar school. He joined the North Staffordshire Regiment in 1895. He served in the Boer War in 1914. He was a major and he was awarded the DSO in 1916. And by 1920, he'd risen to the post of general officer commanding as well as director of the Graves Registration and Inquiry Service that we were talking about. So he is basically the man who's in command of this operation to exhume, identify and rebury soldiers across the main battlefields of, of France and Flanders. Wyatt is kind of the account of where the Unknown Warrior story kind of comes from, right? That's what we base the, or initially anyway, you kind of base the narrative as we know from his 39 letter, right? Yeah, the, the, the accepted narrative emanated from a letter that was published in the Daily Telegraph on the 11th of November in 1939. I think it's important to note that the first part of the letter says, uh, I should like to give here the authentic account of what took place. So there was a number of, of different accounts that had come out in the interwar period of people saying that they'd been involved in the, the burial and he kind of wanted to set the record straight. And I think it's important to note that the, the, this letter comes out on November the 11th, 1939. So the Second World War has just started and so the Unknown Warrior has gained yet more significance as Britain is fighting yet another war. And this letter goes on to become the definitive account basically doesn't it that everybody refers to when talking about the unknown warrior and what happened he he states in it for instance that he he issued instructions that the body of a british soldier which and i'm, I'm quoting which it would be impossible to identify be brought in from each of the four battle areas the Aisne, the somme arras and ypres on the night of november the 7th and placed in the chapel of saint paul that was the location of his headquarters. The party bringing in each body was to return at once to its area so that there should be no chance of their knowing on which the choice fell. So we have these bodies being brought from these four areas to St. Paul and the men involved in bringing them were immediately to return from whence they came so that there could be no communication, no talk with anyone else there, I suppose. So you can see the beginnings of the secrecy involved in the operation. He states then that he reported to his headquarters office at St. Paul at midnight on November the 7th, and Colonel Gale, uh, one of his staff, announced that the bodies were in the chapel and that the men who had brought them had gone. So with Gale, he passed the guard, which he states had been specially mounted, and he entered the chapel. This was to carry out the selection process. And in front of him at that point, he's got four bodies on trestle tables with the Union flag. And the letter states that he chose one body. Um, we've not found any account to say that he was blindfolded. He certainly doesn't mention that in anything that we've seen, even though it is has been mentioned previously. So you can kind of see where stuff starts to get embellished. And basically he, he states that he chose a body and that uh, he and with the assistance of Colonel Gale placed it in the shell 
of the coffin which had been brought from England and we screwed down the lid. I think it's important to state here that it's unprecedented really for a Brigadier General and a Lieutenant Colonel to be lifting a body into a coffin and sealing it themselves but obviously it's important that he wants to make sure that the job's done properly really. Yeah, absolutely. He then goes on to state that the other bodies were removed and reburied in the military cemetery outside my headquarters at St Paul. I have no idea even of the area from which the body I had selected had come. And his, his final line there really is, no one else can know it. So again, we can see that he, even he did not know from where the four bodies that he made the selection had actually come from. The Wyatt newspaper letter, if you like, should also be read in the context of um, another document dated the 22nd of October 1920 from the Adjutant General's Office in London. And it was addressed to the Department of Graves Registration and Inquiry at St. Paul. And it, it states, and I quote, it's, it's headed, Unknown Warrior. The following provisional instructions have been issued by AG, meaning the Adjutant General, in connection with the internment of an unknown warrior in Westminster Abbey on Armistice Day. The DGRD will exercise his discretion as to the location from which the body is exhumed. Date of original burial should be as far back as possible. Under instructions to be issued later, the body will be conveyed to Calais and there placed in a full-size coffin, which will be sent out from England. Sufficient soil is to be sent with the body to cover the coffin and a full-size grave. And it's addressed to War Office, Baker Street, Portman Square, London, W1. And the date repeated again, 22nd of October, 1920. So this document was sent to General Louis John Wyatt in his position as the, the general officer commanding the British troops in France and Flanders. He also had the separate responsibility as being the officer in charge of the Director of Graves Registration and Inquiry. So we can see that it was his responsibility to carry out the orders. It's an early document. Um, as you can see, the operation is evolving very quickly. So obviously it refers to the fact that the body will be conveyed to Calais and their place in the full-size coffin. And obviously we know that that was changed to Boulogne. It mentions the fact that the date of original burial should be as far back as possible. That's related to decomposition of, of remains so that it helps with the body being unidentifiable. But at the top, it says the director general will exercise his discretion, which basically gives a free hand to Wyatt to organise this himself and to and to arrange this as he sees fit, which I think is, is really important. And the significant point here is the date, the 22nd of October. So there's not a lot of time to put this plan together and basically to have the body of the unknown warrior at Westminster on Armistice Day. There's only, what, three weeks really, in, in, in which to carry that, that operation out. And not a lot of orders have, have come to light, really, related specifically to the Unknown Warrior operation. So this order is quite significant, really, in the sense that it's just shedding a tiny little chink of, of light as to, you know, the organisation and what's going on. And obviously it puts Wyatt firmly at the centre of the secret operation. It's Wyatt that's organising this and, and ensuring that it's, that it's carried out. It was... Wyatt, who was also identified in a series of photographs that, that led me to investigate, if you like, the, the role of the DGRNA. These photographs came from the Fitzsimon archive. As I said, there were, there were a series of three or four images. I've since found further photographs in the series in actually the Wyatt papers that are held 
in the Imperial War Museum. And it took me a while to uh, find out exactly what they depicted. There was no annotation on the images that I had. And the only real identifiable part of the image um, was the background, which showed uh, quite an elaborate doorway to a French cathedral. So I, I studied this and eventually discovered that it was, in fact, Amiens Cathedral. In the photographs also, along with Wyatt and General McDonough, was Marshal Foch and Major Ernest Fitzsimon. So I checked newspaper archive material and discovered that Foch, along with McDonough and Wyatt, attended a service at Amiens Cathedral on the 7th of November 1920. The service was to commemorate the Australian defence and the, the, the repulse of the German forces outside Amiens in 1918. It was really the, the turning point of the war, if you like. So I then also found Pathé footage online and could see the images there almost replicated the stills that I had in the Fitzsimon archive. And again, this confirmed the event and that the, the officers mentioned attended it. So that was the first piece of information to really cast doubt in my mind as to the, the accepted start date that General Wyatt wrote about in the 1939 account of being the 7th of November, 1920. I just thought in my mind, if he was to be in charge of an operation that was beginning on the 7th of November, should he not have been at St. Paul? supervising. Maybe he, he should not have been, he may not have been, he could certainly have attended the event at Amiens. But certainly when you see a lower ranking officer like Major Fitzsimon attending the event at Amiens, I would certainly have expected to have seen him at St. Paul or, or to not have seen him at Amiens, but for him to have been at St. Paul um, supervising this body recovery operation. Yeah, the date issue is significant. And, and Andy Richards in his book, The Flag, kind of mentioned it. It was the first time I'd come across it where the issue with the 7th, 8th is that basically a whole day is gained within the timeline. So if the burial pies return to St. Paul on the 7th and the unknown warrior is chosen on, at midnight on the 7th, 8th, the next morning, we know that there was a service held in the chapel and that at midday an ambulance and military escort drove the 50 miles to Boulogne and that they arrived there at 3.30 and we know that this is definitely true that they arrived at 3.30 because loads of people saw it now the issue is that they definitely arrived on the 9th but if you take the 7th 8th there's a whole day missing and we know that the unknown Rory didn't sit for another full day at St Paul and then was taken so there's 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 certain issue isn't there really with regards to the the date that's listed in in the original white 39 letter and that's gone into law really hasn't it with regards to the unknown warrior story yeah it, it has been perpetuated over the years by almost every journalist or writer that covers or that, that mentions the story and also if you work the timeline if you like in the reverse and you start with what we definitely know as fact is that the unknown warrior, the body was brought to Westminster Abbey on the 11th of November 1920. I think that's undeniable. And you, you work your way backwards in the timeline. You don't end up at the 7th. You end up at the 8th. Um, so, yeah, there's something definitely wrong um, with the accepted narrative. And the photographs and actually the footage in and around Amiens Cathedral on the 7th just triggered my my senses, if you like, 
to try and explore that. They definitely, like you say, question why such a senior officer and his party would be at a commemoration service instead of being at St Paul arranging such an important operation. Like you say, Wyatt could have nipped off and done other things whilst the operation was going on, but certainly someone like Fitzsimon, who would have been coordinating this, uh, and we know was at Amiens on the 7th, you would imagine that he would have definitely been there at St Paul making sure that this operation went without a hitch. So that's another reason why the, the Fitzsimon archive kind of supports what officers are doing at specific times, places them at specific places where you can sort of add, add emphasis. There was a 1935 letter that was written four years before the article that appeared in the Daily Telegraph in 1939 that is signed by Wyatt, and that's got a slightly different account, hasn't it? It has, yeah. I found this recently. It is held in the Imperial War Museum uh, with the Wyatt papers, along with, um, as I'd mentioned, the, the still photographs part of the series that were taken at Amiens. But it's dated the 28th of November, 1935. There's a handwritten and a typewritten version, which is good because it makes it a lot easier to to read. Basically, I'll quote from the letter. Wyatt states, all arrangements were left to me and I, I decided that A, the body must be a British soldier and that there could be no means of him being identified. B, the body should be chosen from each of the four big battle areas, the N, Somme, Arras and Ypres. C. The body should be brought to my headquarters at St Paul and placed in the chapel there on the 8th of November 1920. And D. The parties bringing the body should at once return to their areas. And again you could argue well the 8th you know was it the 7th end of the 8th or whatever but then in the next line he actually very clearly states I quote at 12 midnight 8th stroke 9th of November it was reported that the four bodies had arrived and accompanied by Lieutenant Colonel Gell, one of my staff, I went to the chapel. So there we have very clearly, he mentions first of all the 8th, he then clarifies it by saying, and he, he adds a time at 12 midnight on the 8th, 9th of November. Uh, further on in the account, I'll, I'll skip down a couple of paragraphs, and he further states then, I quote, the following afternoon, the 9th of November, the body was sent in an ambulance under, under escort to Boulogne, where it was placed in an oak coffin with a crusader's sword from the Tower of London on the top as the only ornament. The body was under a guard from the French infantry stationed there. He goes on then to state on the morning of the 10th that it was uh, flanked by fall bearers and that Marshal Foch, representing the French nation, General Sir George Macdonough, and the leading officers and civil dignitaries of the French followed the coffin, which was escorted by a complete French division of all arms as a guard of honour. So there we have very, the very public side of the operation and the, the date there, which then matches the timeline that we know, being the 10th of November, and the body was then carried to the destroyer HMS Verdun. So yeah, this account, as I say, dated the 20th of November 1935, four years before the Daily Telegraph account. It is more contemporaneous by that time frame and it is also an original handwritten and dated document. So it carries considerable weight as a piece of evidence. That's it. It's significant that it was signed by Wyatt and it fits the timeline with the dates that are listed. I think it's important to note that the 39 letter, there could be a number of reasons why the 7th 
is listed in there. It could be a mistake from when it was published. There could be any any other reasons, couldn't there? It could have been misread. Um, who knows? We, you know, I haven't seen the original of that document, and that's the problem. You know, what we are seeing is what ended up in print, and there, it's, it has probably gone through maybe four or five hands through editors and typesetters and whatnot until we actually read it in that print form. So it, you know, it's, it is not an original document in the same way that this 1935 document is. That's it. And I think really, if you take the evidence of the timeline of going back and actually checking the dates as we know, from what we know from the 10th, from the sailing of, of HMS Verdun, that we know sailed on the 10th, and then you go back, the 8th, 9th is the only date which, which fits. And obviously receiving a written confirmation from the officer in charge of that operation confirming this pr- produced before the 1939 letter it just kind of cements that really that now we we know that the the body was chosen on the night of the 8th 9th not the 7th 8th yeah and what, once we've established that fact it has repercussions for other documents and one in particular that i think we'll talk about later I'd just like to mention as well that it's interesting really that there are kind of snippets of wyatt talking about his involvement in the operation on the 9th of october 1937 he gave a talk to the the rotary club of carlisle about his involvement in the unknown warrior operation and he says some quite nice things in the sense that he describes the fact that it was felt the grave of a soldier with money should be the same as that of a private and wyatt quotes we were all equal in the war when we were dead we were still equal and we were very lucky to interview and meet uh, Brigadier General Wyatt's daughter, Letitia Hardy, and she told some pretty amazing stories about her father. And what comes across is obviously his attention to detail, his attention of duty and, and to look after his soldiers. And he clearly had pride in being involved in the Unknown Warrior operation and wanted to... I think there was a there was a battle there between making sure that disinformation probably didn't come out, but also obviously protecting the, the secret operation as the Unknown Warrior was to keep his identity secret. So he's kind of fighting a battle there i think between not wanting people to manipulate or change the story away from what actually happened but also not giving anything away which could affect the body that's that lies in in westminster abbey yeah it's it's human nature really i mean you have essentially a covert secret operation and over the period of four days it becomes a very public overt operation very public and, you know, it, 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 it is human nature. People just want to know what happened. They want to know how this came about. He was in the middle of a balancing act, uh, essentially. He still had to protect the, the secret side of the, the operation, but he had to produce this unknown warrior for the public. I think, as you say, Joyce, when we met his daughter, Letitia, that's kind of the measure of the man that you get, that he wanted to make sure things were done right. And who better to kind of tell the tale to Rotary Crubs than himself? He just wants to make sure every T is crossed and I is dotted, you know. He wants to put the, put the correct version of events out there as much as he can or, you know, protect as uh, what he can, you know, at the same time. And interestingly, in the 1935 document, the start of it, the first paragraph, really, he states, um, and I quote again, is rather interesting that after the approval had been given, I attended a large luncheon party. And at it, I was asked, what they thought of the proposal to bring over a body and only one person out of 24 agreed that it was a wonderful idea the rest said it would never appeal to the english so you can see he must have um, really doubted himself walking out of that luncheon party you know and, and uh, you know there was an immense responsibility on his shoulders 
And was he thinking you know, that, that this, w this wasn't going to work? The public just wouldn't accept it. But thankfully, the complete opposite was the truth. I think it's interesting as well in the article he says about that luncheon party, he's quoted as saying to the, the, the people at the Rotary Club, we are a sentimental nation, but we do not show it which is kind of saying there that we, we do need these, we, these symbols, we're just not as overt, but obviously the outpouring of, of emotion and grief when the unknown warrior was laid to rest shows that the feeling that was there, you know, it might not have been overt, but it was there, it was just below the surface. Yeah, it was, it was beyond the, the dignified stiff upper lip, if you like, you know, it was an immense outpouring of grief. Well, it was great to speak to you, Mark, about Brigadier General Louis John Wyatt and cover his amazing story and his remarkable part in the operation. We will speak to you very soon about some other things that the change in date, as you've said, kind of allows us to line up other documents which we know are significant in the story. So uh, thank you for your time again, and we will speak to you very soon. Thank you. Look forward to it. <laughs>